Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. Walthamstow, or Wilkhamstow, is mentioned in the Doomsday Book as a manor owned by an Anglo-Saxon nobleman called Earl Walterhof. It later became a rural development with a small village centre now known as Walthamstow Village. It was popular with the gentry who used it as a retreat from the hustle and bustle of the city. The development of the railways in the late 19th century changed everything. The London to Chingford line opened in 1873 and resulted in a mind-boggling transformation of the area. In 1871, there were around 10,000 people in Walthamstow. By 1891, it had grown to 100,000 as people who had the means fled the East End slums. Walthamstow was by definition a little cut above the rest of East London. This feeling of aspiration was helped along by Thomas Courtney Warner, who inherited his father's Walthamstow estate and built higher quality housing for working class residents. The streets were wider and tree-lined and property had its own small front garden. That's not to say there wasn't poverty in Walthamstow. It was just behind closed doors rather than out in the streets like in Spitalfields. Today is another COVID-19 special, bringing you an audio-guided tour of Walthamstow's radical past. We're supposed to be delivering this tour with Joyriders, an excellent women-run cycle confidence organisation. After talking to mums on the school run, founder Carolyn Axtell realised many women wanted to cycle but lacked the confidence to do so, particularly women from Muslim backgrounds like herself. Joyriders has been providing cycle training and tours for women for a few years now. They've also responded with innovation to the current pandemic, hosting Zoom talks, Q&As and video cycle tours to keep women connected and active. So we're delighted that they're creating a video cycle tour of the route I'm about to talk you through. Using both resources together will provide the fullest experience. There's a link to the video in this episode's show notes. So dust down that old bike and give the cycling route a go. Health and safety note. Please don't cycle and listen to the podcast at the same time. Enjoy your heritage safely. So back to Wolfenstow and its radical past. Its most famous resident is probably William Morris, the textile designer and socialist. Much has been said and written about Morris, so we probably don't need to repeat all of that here. But there are several women in his life who are less well-known and equally as important in transforming society. So let's start today's audio tour at the house where he lived as a teenager, which is now William Morris Gallery. And if you were standing outside William Morris Gallery now, what you would see is a very grand, grade two listed building, which was built in the 18th century. There's a black front door, and either side of the door are two white pillars, which mark the main entrance of this three-story building. And behind the building, there are extensive grounds. And you can imagine Morris and his family wandering the grounds in the summer sun. Maybe they're chatting politics or art. However, the property it was sold in 1856 and it was bought by a newspaper proprietor named Edward Lloyd. And his son donated the gardens to the public in 1900. And they became known as Lloyd Park, which is what they're known as today. Now, one of the women connected to William Morris, who is often overlooked, is Daisy Greville. 
And she was, along with Morris, one of the founding members of the Social Democratic Federation, or SDF. That was Britain's first socialist political party. So they joined around the same time, and Daisy was another member of the local gentry. I mean, she came from money. She was also a great beauty, and after marriage became the Countess of Warwick. She was known for hosting and attending very lavish parties. And actually, the musical song, Daisy Daisy, was written in her honour, or or maybe not her honour, because it's uh, said to be linked to her alleged affair with the Prince of Wales. At the turn of the century, Daisy was converted to socialism and joined the SDF, as I mentioned before, and she actually became one of the key funders of the organisation. So she used her money to fund socialism, basically. She also invested in a number of other social causes, including women's education. So she helped set up a needlework school and an agricultural college that would provide local young people with some technical skills which would help them into better paid employments. She also for 10 years financed the Big Odds Technical College for Disadvantaged Children and she also campaigned for free school meals. In 1914, World War I broke out and she was fiercely opposed to it. However, she did support the 1917 Russian Revolution. After 1923, she joined the Independent Labour Party and toured the entire constituency to rally support for them. However, later in life, she withdrew from socialism and focused on animal welfare instead. She died in 1938, aged 76. The other woman that is connected to William Morris but also lives in his shadow is his daughter May. She was born in 1862 and she's best remembered for being the director of embroidery at her father's company. However, she was also an activist who deserves recognition in her own right. Like her father, she was a member of the SDF and campaigned for workers' rights alongside her very good friend Eleanor Marx, who is the daughter of Karl Marx. So two women with very famous fathers, but also amazing activists in their own right. She was never fully involved in the women's suffrage campaign, and actually she was a bit exasperated by the movement because she felt that women's issues shouldn't be narrowed down just to the question of the vote. And she wasn't alone in this at all. We talked in episode one of Melvina Walker, who expressed the same frustrations that women's political activity was restricted to venereal disease and the vote. Like Eleanor, May believed that women's freedom stemmed from economic freedom. However, May's greatest achievement was the establishment of the Women's Guild of Arts, which was set up in 1907. And she set this up because she was disappointed that the existing guilds did not admit women. So establishing the Women's Guild allowed for greater independence and freedom of artistic expression for women, at an extent that was just previously unknown. So a bit about May's personal life now. So she was briefly married and also allegedly had an affair with George Bernard Shaw. However, it was later in life that she established her relationship with Mary Lobb, which was probably the most profound. Although the exact nature of this relationship is hard to determine. Some will argue quite fiercely that it was a sexual relationship, although the evidence to back that up is a little bit slim. 
What we can say is that she definitely defied convention living with Mary and, and having the sort of relationship she did with her. It was definitely outside the normative structures of the time. And they also clearly took great joy and comfort in their relationship with each other. So now we're going to head up Forest Road a little way. Now, Forest Road is quite a busy road. Please do be careful on this road. You can use the newly established cycle paths, which is part of the Wolfen Forest Mini Holland scheme. So heading up Forest Road, we'll come across an old police station, which is looking a bit run down nowadays. It's all sort of boarded up. But if you look past those boards, you'll see a red brick Victorian building, which is built in the Jacobean style. It was established in 1892, and I believe this may be where Carpal Kursandu spent some time working. Now, she's significant because she was the world's first Asian woman's police officer. So, Carpal was born in 1943 into a Sikh family in Zanzibar. She moved to Britain in 1962, and in 1971 she joined the Metropolitan Police Service, serving in Hornsey, then Walthamstow and Leighton. Now, we can only imagine what it was like, not just as a woman, but as a woman of colour, to break through into the Metropolitan Police Service at the time. There's no records of exactly what she went through, so we just kind of have to use our imagination. And I think it's a fairly safe assumption that that was probably not an easy ride. However, she was held in quite high esteem by the leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service. It was said she proved invaluable in dealing with immigrant communities. And this is the 70s, so we've just had this huge influx of immigrant communities and there were big language barriers. So I I can see that that would have been a very valuable service that she could provide. And it was a real dream come true for her. However, things did take a turn for the worse. Her husband was furious about this career. He considered it, not only was it not ladylike, it was not Asian either. This was just not what Asian women did. He went in such a rage that he left and returned to India and he took their two children with him. He did come back though and he confronted her outside her house in Walthamstow. However, things got very aggressive and eventually violent and he pulled out a knife and he stabbed her in the neck. This very tragic end resulted in a court case at the Old Bailey and her husband was, in 1974, sentenced to life. Although this is a very tragic end to the story, it's important to remember that today in the Met there are 280 Asian women police officers and they're there because of Carpool, because she was the first. So we're going to take a little ride across Walthamstow now and head over to Wood Street. So like the rest of the area, Wood Street was rural until the 19th century, when the building of Wood Street Station led to a housing building boom in the area. Another important thing to note in the Wood Street area is the Woodside Primary School, which we're going to stop outside today and talk about. Woodside was one of 13 new schools erected by the Walthamstow School Board between 1880 and 1903, and it was set up to cater for the vastly increasing population. So the building is a very traditional Victorian building, red brick, I think it has girls' and boys' entrances. 
Just to explain a little bit now about the Walthamstow School Board, the 1870 Education Act brought in state education like never before. And one of the things that act did was establish school boards. So previously schools had been run, a lot of them were run by the church or other voluntary organisations such as charities. So the school boards changed all of that and they had members of the public who sat on the boards and they were voted in by the public as well. And this was one of the few places where women could both vote and stand for election. In Walthamstow, there were no women on the school boards until 1894. And then two women were elected, Mrs Ellison and Miss Carter. Mrs Ellison is who I'd like to talk to you about today. So she lived on Prospect Hill in Walthamstow with her husband, William. She was a head teacher at Marsh Street School for Girls until she married in 1887. We can assume that she gave up teaching because she got married, because at that time you couldn't be married and be a teacher. So a a lot of women left the profession when they got married. Standing for election to the Walthamstow School Board, she pledged to further the spiritual, moral and mental welfare of children. She was elected onto the board and she sat on the board until 1897 when it was election time again. This time she was actually ousted by Liberal candidates. Now, Mrs Ellison stood as an independent, but the Liberals tagged her with a a Tory label and they described her defeat as a defeat for Toryism. Although this was refuted by Miss Carter, who was the other woman who stood, it was refuted by her brother that they were Tories. Now, I've looked into the papers around this and it's been quite difficult to establish what exactly happened here. There were allegations that Mrs Ellison was unpopular with the schools and there's also records that she only attended 7 out of 36 meetings. So it might be true that they had rather right-wing principles and that she hadn't done well in the role, but it's also a little bit of a coincidence, I feel, that it was the two women who were ousted from the board. But what I quite like about Mrs Ellison is that she didn't give up. So in 1899, someone resigns and she steps forward and says, well, why don't you take me? And they agree that she is elected onto the board at that time. She also stands again in 1900 and she is re-elected. Sadly, she died in 1903, but according to newspaper cuttings of the time, she was hailed with great affection and It does, again, throw into question what happened in 1897. Was this a professional difference or was this about gender? The presence of women like Mrs Ellison were important on the school boards as they did push certain issues up the agenda. Issues like welfare and girls' education. So at the time, girls' education was often not prioritised in society or in the family. So if they could only send one child to school, they'd probably send the boy. So having women on the board was hugely important. So we're going to jump forward in time a bit now and talk about another woman in education and her name is Hebo Wadere. Now she is a contemporary activist and she hails from Somalia. 
Hebo has established herself as one of the leading voices on the campaign against female genital mutilation. So where Hebo is from in Somalia, 98% of the girls are victims of female genital mutilation or FGM. And Hebo was cut herself and she was very determined that this would not happen to her daughter. When war broke out in Somalia, she fled the country with a family friend and she came to London. And please do go onto our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk, to hear Hebo's own accounts of this experience and, and what it was like for her to escape and, and end up in London. Now, she established herself in, in this country and she got married and she had seven children. And then she went on to become a teaching assistant. Now, as part of her teacher training, she had to do an assignment, which was to look at the school's child protection policy. And so she looked at the school where she was working and she saw nothing about FGM in there. And she decided it had to be in there. So she stayed up all night writing about her experience. Now, she'd not shared this before, so this is very significant. And she went to school the next day and she showed it to the head And the head was so taken aback that he said, okay, you need to do a talk with all of our staff. And this was a real turning point for Hebo. So after doing this talk with the staff, she began touring other schools in the borough and talking to other staff. And this was facilitated by some of the councillors at the Orphan Forest Council. However, she wanted to take this further. She wanted to talk to students as well. But this was quite a big leap. There was The schools thought, well, you know, it's one thing talking to the staff, but there's quite another thing talking to the children. But Hebo knew that this was important. She had to talk to the girls because she knew that this was probably going on in this country as well. Eventually, she got in at Frederick Bremer, which is the secondary school just down the road from where you would be standing right now. And after her first talk, she was approached by a young girl who had said that she had been cut and she feared for her younger sisters. And Hebo said this was her proudest moment because she knew she had broken through and she was helping people in the way that she wanted to. Now, Hebo's gone on to do amazing things, including writing a book. She's very active on social media, so please do go and check her out. And as I said, on our website, you can hear more about her story in her own words at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. So we're going to take a break now, but when we return, we're going to look at the housing issue because this has been a big issue in Walthamstow in recent years as the area has become increasingly gentrified. And like generations before involved in the housing movement, it is women who took the lead in fighting back. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There's also a walking tour app where you can take yourself on guided tours around the local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of the family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. So we're going to walk up Wood Street and head over to the Marlow Road estate. 
Standing there today, you will see some rather swish-looking flats, which were built only a few years ago. However, previously, Marlow Road was known for being crime-ridden and run down. And in 2006, it was set for demolition, with a £1 million energy grant to make the new homes low carbon. Sounds good, but existing residents had a different opinion. They were being moved into temporary accommodation and the leaseholders were issued with compulsory purchase orders. And many just left when the council issued these. But one woman, called Melanie Briggs, decided to stay and fight. One of the reasons she did that was as a leaseholder, she was offered what she was told was full market value for her house. But it actually wasn't enough to buy her either a flat in the new development that you would be standing outside right now, or even anywhere else in Walthamstow. And she knew she wasn't actually the worst off either. Marlow Road Estate had a lot of social housing tenants, and they were told that they would be moved to other estates, some as far away as Basildon. And within this group, you had victims of domestic violence and elderly people, and actually some of the elderly people were being moved into temporary accommodation from which they would probably never return. Melanie decided to produce a leaflet and she went out leafleting and she got rather uh, non-enthusiastic response from that. So she took to social media and the response was huge. There was massive public outcry. And there was such a huge response that it actually forced both the council and local MP Stella Creasy to make public responses to what she was talking about. Sadly, it wasn't enough to win the campaign. However, the leaseholders who did stay did get a fairer price, but the demolition did go ahead. Now we're going to head a bit further up the road to another estate, and this is called the Butterfields Estate. And as you step onto the estate, you do sort of feel like you're stepping out of Walthamstow a little. And while it's not quite the rural farmlands of old Wilkhamstow, it does feel very quiet and it's leafy enough to feel a bit suburban. Yet a few years ago, this quiet corner of Walthamstow became quite a battlefield between housing activists and landlords. So a little bit of information on the background of Butterfield's estate. It was managed by a charity called Glasspool. And the tenants thought they were in safe hands because the charity was actually set up to alleviate poverty. So there was a promise that their rents would stay affordable and, and like generally affordable, not the kind of affordable that they talk about nowadays. So they would stay at a, a living cost. However, Glasspool decided to sell the properties to a private developer. And this is where the trouble was started. Within weeks of this happening, the tenants started receiving letters through their door, which were basically eviction notices. And the tenants spilled out onto the streets, and neighbours who had previously never spoken to each other started talking, but they were like completely shell-shocked. They decided that they had to oppose this. It was completely unfair and against everything that Glasspool had previously stood for. So they organised media coverage, they set up an online petition, they started doing social media, and they organised marches for Walthamstow. And the support flooded in because people really saw that this was completely unjust. 
And it also attracted some quite high-profile attention. The local MP, Stella Creasy, got involved and she invited the chair of the Glassball Trust to a meeting at the House of Commons. Now, it all escalated in this meeting. No one knows quite what happens, but she ended up throwing him out for what she described as, quote, appalling behaviour. So in 2016, a housing association called Dolphin Living stepped in and pretty much saved the day by agreeing to buy all the tenanted properties. Unfortunately, some had already given up and left, which is often what happens in these situations. But those who stayed celebrated a victory. And on their Facebook page, they said, quote, On behalf of the tenants, thank you to all involved and making us realise we were not powerless to resist. Those who guided us on the traction of our campaign and all parties who worked hard behind closed doors to bring this to the right conclusion for all. And that Facebook group is still active and it has nearly 600 followers. And they continue to encourage people to fight against housing developments, which are still going on and which are still failing to provide genuinely affordable housing to residents in Walthamstow. So what's worth noting with both the Butterfields estate and Marlow Road was that although it wasn't only women involved, it was women who led the battles. And we saw this in the 1930s when there was another housing crisis and women were once again on the forefront of these campaigns. And one of the reasons that this keeps happening is that women are often in a physical position to take on landlords because they're often the ones at home looking after the kids. And although many more women nowadays go out to work, it's often women who lead the responsibility for children's welfare. So it will be women who are thinking about, if I have to move, I'm going to have to move my child to a new school and organising all that. So despite changing women's role, we continue to see women leading this fight driven by parental concerns. So now we're going to head into Wolfenstow Village, which, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, was the heart of the old rural settlement. And it does still very much feel like a village. It's got some very old buildings in there and it's got kind of winding streets and a rural feel has lingered in the area. It's also where local MP Stella Creasy's office is. We've come here to talk about Rebecca Tully, who has taken the struggle for peace into the modern age. Now, Rebecca Tully has been involved in the peace movement since she was a child. She was actually taken to Green and Common by her mother. She later went on to do an MA in refugee studies. Nowadays, she divides her time between visiting refugee camps in France and organising with campaign against the arms trade because she sees that there's a direct link between the situation with refugees and the arms trade. So one of the most memorable moments was outside Stella Creasy's office in Walthamstow Village in December 2015. And it was on the eve of a very crucial commons vote on airstrikes in Syria. And Rebecca, with her friend Sue Wheat, organised a demonstration outside the constituency office. Local residents wanted to show Stella Creasy, their MP, that they wanted her to vote against the strikes. So they met at the mosque, which was just down the road, and they led a candlelit vigil to her office. 
and then they wrote on the window of the office with post-it notes the word peace. Now Rebecca said it was one of the most inspiring and diverse events she's ever been part of. She said, quote, I've never been part of something so diverse. People of all sorts of faiths talked and I thought whatever happens, I know people will agree with me. I know I'm not alone. We're now going to head over to the last stop on today's tour and we're going to head through the village, past the Nags Head pub, which if you're cycling and like to stop off and grab yourself a drink, you can do that now. And we're going to go through the churchyard of St Mary's Church. There's a very interesting little alley called Vinegar Alley as you pass that on your right. Uh, stop there and have a read of the sign there which will tell you all about the plague pits. And then we're going to head over to Wolfenstow School for Girls. So this school was built in 1890 and it is a rather grand red brick building with black iron gates outside the front. And it's had a number of well-known alumni here, including the trade unionist Ada Maddox. So Ada joined the Women's Cooperative Guild and the Cooperative Union in London, and she worked extensively in the health sector, including supporting the ambulance workers dispute in 1989 and 1990. As part of that dispute, she went to Smith Mills Market one cold winter's morning before dawn to win the support of the meat porters. And they let her stand on one of their barrows to talk, and this was an honour previously only given to the Queen Mother. That same year, Ada was elected as president of the TUC, becoming only the fifth woman to hold that post. Despite her high position, her friends and former colleagues say that Ada was a woman with her feet firmly on the ground. She was a woman of the people. However, we've not come here today to talk about Ada, but another woman who several generations later was also changing the world. And this young woman would rise up from this school and change society. Her name is Arafa Nassim, and when Arafa was only 14, she read a book that changed her life. That book was The Daughters of Shame by Jasvinda Sangira, and within that book contained horrifying stories of honour abuse and honour killings. After reading this book, Arafa realised she had to do something about it, so she went to her head teacher and said she wanted to organise a fundraiser for the school. Now the head teacher was a bit anxious about this because Arafa was building up to her GCSEs and she said, are you sure you have time to do this and your GCSE? And Arafa said, nobody is more concerned about my exam results than me and I am telling you that I can do both at the same time. And she did and she raised £5,000 for this cause. However, it did not end there. She soon met with Hebo. Wadire, who we talked about earlier, and together they formed Educate to Eradicate to train teachers everywhere in the UK to eliminate forced marriage, FGM and honour abuse. Since setting up Educate to Eradicate, Arafa has also been on the UK delegation to the UN in New York, where she talked alongside the likes of John Kerry and David Cameron. In the show notes, I'm going to give you a link to Educate to Eradicate so you can find out more about their work because it, it really is extraordinary. Also in the show notes, I'm going to give you a link to Joyriders for the video tour. But for now, that ends this audio tour. I want to leave you with a little message today from a co-producer. 
This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we begin a new five-part series on the battle for equal pay in East London. If you enjoyed this series, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the National Heritage Lottery Fund for their support of today's episode.